0: All right. Happy New Year, everybody. Thank you for coming. Uh, Tonight, we're going to begin Revelation chapter 21. We're going to be in verses 1 to 3, where we read. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Let's pray. Gracious God, I thank you for tonight. I thank you for bringing us back together after a layoff, Lord, in this new year to study your word together, God. And I pray that you would give us new insights into your word, that you would open our eyes to who you are, open our minds to understand, and our hearts to receive, Lord, what you would say through your word tonight, God. Pray that you would be with us and work here by your Spirit, God. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Okay, so we are in the middle of the last and seventh vision cycle. This vision cycle opened up with that condensed history of time between Christ's two comings, represented by the thousand years. This is the time that Satan is expelled from heaven, stuck on earth, focusing his ministry against the church. But we saw that we are those who have already been made spiritually alive with Christ and we reign with him as we conquer this world for him. We endure through the trials of this life knowing that we will be with Christ forever. We also saw into the future. We saw once again that final battle when Satan will be released from prison as we saw, the the war War of Gog and Magog or the Battle of Armageddon, whatever you want to call it, Satan's final attempt to thwart God's plan happens but Christ comes in judgment. And Satan, the powers of darkness, will be thrown into eternal punishment, which is called the lake of fire. Then we saw the judgment of man, all men, the sheep and the goats together. And those whose names were not written in the book of life were thrown into the lake of fire. We saw the destruction of death, how the intermediate place of the dead was also destroyed. And now we have the final two chapters. In the rest of this final vision cycle, we're going to see only our glorious future as the elect the eternal state of those whose names are written in the book of life and who conquer in the name of Christ. And what we're going to see tonight is the new heaven and the new earth. This is the new creation that God planned from the dawn of time. This is not a return to Eden. This is the culmination of what Eden really pointed to, the place where heaven will meet earth finally and forever. And what we need to do, not surprisingly, is look at the Old Testament background of what we're about to see before we can get into the details. So that's what we're going to do to start. Now remember, Eden was just a small part of the original creation. The mandate to Adam and Eve was to multiply and fill and subdue the whole earth for God. They were to take what was in Eden and expand it over the whole earth. But they failed. As we saw, so did Noah and his family. We saw it as the church in the power of the spirit that has been multiplying over the earth. We have been subduing the powers of darkness and filling the world with the knowledge and the glory of God. We have been expanding his kingdom over the whole earth. But it's when Christ returns that this will finally be completed. And his glory won't only fill the earth, it will fill the whole creation, the whole cosmos. It will destroy the old creation that has been corrupted by sin and that has been cursed by God because of sin. And he will make a new creation that is perfect and incorruptible. And it won't be one particular place in the creation where heaven and earth meet. There won't be one mountaintop. There won't be one nation. There won't be one place. The entire creation will be the place where heaven and earth are one and where God will dwell forever. And this idea of the expansion of a dwelling place of God over the whole creation is hinted at throughout the Old Testament. Now, understanding, remember, that in the prophets and the poetic books, Zion and Jerusalem were interchangeable symbols of the whole of God's spiritual people, ultimately. And in many places... We see that the temple, which was the place of God's presence among his people, we see it predicted to expand over all of Jerusalem, and then we see the borders of Jerusalem prophesied to expand more and more until the whole world is part of it. Now remember, the tabernacle and the temple were meant to be made as symbols of heaven. Just the Garden of Eden was a picture of heaven. It was literally the place where heaven met earth. But the garden was just a part of Eden. Eden. And Eden was just part of the whole creation. So the garden was the first temple. It's the first place where God's presence dwelt on earth. And that's why the tabernacle and the temple contained all those images of trees and fruits and animals. They were intentionally decorated by God to look like the garden because the temple represented the garden which represented heaven. And we've also seen Christ is really the true temple. The temple and the tabernacle pointed forward to him because he is the place where God truly dwelt on earth. And... In him, in this age, we, the church, are the temple. We are where God dwells on earth by his spirit. And this is what is symbolized by the prophets when we talk about the temple and all of Jerusalem or Zion becoming one. Like in Isaiah 4, where we read, The Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day, And smoke and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory there will be a canopy. There will be a booth for shade by day from the heat and for a refuge and a shelter from the storm and rain. Now remember, in the Old Testament, Mount Zion moves. It's always where God's presence was. When the temple was built, the ark is actually taken from Zion and brought to the temple. From then on, the temple mount is called Mount Zion. Then after a time, the whole city of Jerusalem is called Zion because Zion always refers to where God's presence dwells, which is why it is appointed to the church in this age. (laughs) Well, in Isaiah 4, we see that not only are Zion and Jerusalem one, but now Zion is spoken of as if it were the temple. The glory cloud is here predicted to cover the whole of Mount Zion or Jerusalem. We read more in the book of Jeremiah in Jeremiah 3. And when you have multiplied and been fruitful in the land, in those days, declares the Lord, they shall no more say, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. It shall not come to mind or be remembered or missed. It shall not be made again. At that time, Jerusalem shall be called the throne of the Lord. And all nations shall gather to it, to the presence of the Lord in Jerusalem. And they shall no more stubbornly follow their own evil heart. Now remember, after Babylon destroyed Jerusalem and destroyed the temple, the Ark of the Covenant is never seen again. God here says that doesn't matter. Remember, the ark was just a physical representation of his presence among his people. In fact, God here says the ark will one day be completely forgotten because his presence would extend over the whole of Jerusalem. Jerusalem itself will be the temple of God where people will come to worship him. He says where all the nations will gather to his presence. And then after the Babylonian captivity when the remnant returned. Uh, if you know the story, they struggled to get the temple rebuilt. They struggled to establish proper worship of God. They struggled to provide proper proper service to God. And through the prophet Zechariah, God promises them that nonetheless his presence will return and be established in the midst of his people. Look at what he says. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts. And the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Cry out again, thus says the Lord of hosts. My cities shall again overflow with prosperity. And the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. Now we've seen this measuring line talk before. In the book of Ezekiel, we've seen the end times temple is measured. In Revelation 11, When we looked at the two witnesses, we saw the temple was measured. Here, the same thing is happening, but it's the whole of Jerusalem that is measured. God is expanding his temple. And in the next chapter, we see the extent of the expansion. Zechariah says, And I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. Then I said, Where are you going? And he said to me, To measure Jerusalem, to see what is its width and what its length. And behold, the angel who talked with me came forward. And another angel came forward to meet him and said to him, Run, say to that young man, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. And it will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord, and I will be in the glory of her midst. <coughs> the temple here is measured, but it's all of Jerusalem. But not only is Jerusalem the temple... Jerusalem is said here to expand. It is to be inhabited as a place without walls because of the great population that will be in it. And God says he will be in the midst of it. But there's more because look what God says next. He says, up, up, flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord. For I have spread you abroad as the four winds of heavens, declares the Lord. Up, escape to Zion, you who dwell with the daughter of Babylon. Now why is this important here in this particular prophecy? Well, because realize this prophecy came after the physical remnant already returned to Israel. So who is God speaking of? Who is God calling to Zion? Well, he's calling his church. He's calling his spiritual people. And he continues, he says, For thus, says the Lord of hosts, after his glory sent me to the nations who plundered you, for he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. Behold, I will shake my hand over them, and they shall become plunder for those who serve them. Then you will know what the Lord of hosts has sent me. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion. For behold, I come and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people. And I will dwell in your midst and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. Remember, the church of this age is here to plunder Satan and his kingdom of this world, the spiritual Babylon. And note that here, the temple, which is all of Jerusalem, and God is in her midst. And he says many nations will join themselves to the temple and become God's people. And what we see here is a promise that runs throughout the entire Bible. God promises from the very beginning that those who he chooses will be his people. He says, they will be my people and I will be their God. That is always the reward of the faithful. That's the end game. That's our eternity. This promise began when God first established Israel. The blessings for obedience that we always look at in Leviticus 26 ends like this. I will make my dwelling among you and my soul shall not abhor you. I will walk among you and will be your God, and you shall be my people. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, that you should not be their slaves, and I have broken the bars of your yoke and made you walk erect. And through the prophets, we see that this promise is ultimately for the spiritual people of God. And when we see the promises of God to His spiritual people in the Old Testament and we see the promise of a land to them, it is not speaking of the physical land of Israel. It is ultimately talking about the new heaven and the new earth, where the spiritual people of God will physically live with Him. This is why after Ezekiel's vision in the Valley of Dry Bones, God promises a great restoration of His people, and He says this, My servant David shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. They shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob where your fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever. And David my servant shall be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will set them in their land and multiply them. I will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. My dwelling place shall be with them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. There we have it again. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. So there will be this expansion of a temple, the expansion of Jerusalem. And while this is the mission of the church in this age, it culminates with God planting his people in the new heaven and the new earth, which is the entire new creation. This is what we saw way back when we looked at Daniel 2 at the beginning of our study. When we looked at one of Nebuchadnezzar's dreams, he sees that statue that represents all the kingdoms of the world to come, and has the head of gold, the chest of silver, the feet of clay, all that. These are the kingdoms we've seen represented by the first beast in the book of Revelation and what ultimately happens to the kingdom of the world in that vision. Daniel 2, as you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay, and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces, and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away, so not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. And as we saw, that stone is Christ. <coughs> And that mountain, as we've seen, remember, mountains are always used to symbolize where God dwells on earth. That is the kingdom of God expanding over all the earth. As Daniel explains a little later, and in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever, just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hands, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. And once again, we are in this age as the church, bringing the kingdom of this world to an end. We are at war against the beast, spiritual Babylon, the kingdom of Satan, and what we are doing is expanding the kingdom of God. But this is ultimately fulfilled in the new heaven and the new earth by Christ. And once again, everything we're talking about follows that sequence at the end of the book of Ezekiel we talked about last time. The spirit comes and makes God's people alive, that was the valley of dry bones. We expand the kingdom as God begins to restore all things. That is what we just read about, God gathering all the nations. Then we read about the war of Gog and Magog. And finally, the new temple and the permanent dwelling of man when God completes his restoration. This is exactly what we saw in Revelation 20. The first resurrection is the coming of a spirit to make us alive. The thousand years is the time of the expansion of God's kingdom. The final battle is Gog and Magog in Revelation 20. And now in Revelation 21, we are looking at the new temple. We're looking at a new creation where God is physically in the midst of his people. And we need to remember this is all symbolic. We don't get a description of the whole new creation. In fact, we get very little. And John will actually focus his attention mostly on the new Jerusalem more than anything else. And what we're gonna see in these last two chapters are just symbols of our eternity. Because the point is that whatever new creation will be exactly, we don't know. What we know is that our final and eternal reward is Christ. It is living in God's presence, and this was God's plan all along. From the time he created the first creation, the creation we're in now, Satan didn't thwart God's plan one bit. God knew all along that this is how he would accomplish his design. This new creation is his original design. This was always his plan. But let's remember why these chapters here would be included in the vision God gives to John. Now, as I've said, the view that believes most of the first 20 chapters of the book of Revelation or about some period of time that has nothing to do with the church renders this book almost useless to us as the church. The whole idea of this being a period that involves only the wicked and their punishment to me makes the book something more like a series on TLC that gets viewership only out of morbid curiosity. But thank God that's not the case. The book is written for us. It is about Christ for Christians who have to live out our faith in the face of the tribulation described in this book. And all these calls to endure and to persevere and to conquer reach their culmination in these last two chapters because they reveal the sure fulfillment of the promise of God. So we should look at these last two chapters in light of the first 20, but we should also look at the first 20 in light of these last two. See, the reason we persevere isn't just to persevere through suffering. We persevere unto our final salvation. And these last two chapters of the Bible give us a glimpse into the reward we'll receive for living out the rest of the Bible. These last two chapters show us the result of the rest of the Bible. These last two chapters show us the purpose of the rest of the Bible. This is what it's all about. It is the whole of the elect in Christ's presence forever. The whole Bible points us here. And just, we just need to look at how the section even begins. Revelation 21.1, John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. This is a direct callback to the very first verse of the Bible. We read in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Here in Revelation 21 John tells us this heaven and earth this old creation is gone. It's passed away. It gives it gives way to the new. The heaven and earth that God created at the start of time is gone now in the vision and in its place is a new heaven and a new earth. He says I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and first earth had passed away. They're gone. But unlike the first creation where we get details of God making all that he made, right? The dry land, the vegetation, the animals, the sun, the moon, the stars. The human new creation just is. Why is that? Well, I want you to think about the new heaven and the new earth, not as a physical place, but as an eternal state or circumstance. Because this is all highly symbolic. All we know for sure, because we get this from outside the book of Revelation, all we know is that we will be raised physically, and we will be with Christ physically forever. Now, since we're physical, when this happens, it has to occur in a physical place, but that's not what's being described here. This is more about the circumstances of our eternity with Christ. And it's important to understand this because it has great implications for how we live out life in the here and now as the church. Because that is the point of the book of Revelation. That's why the first vision cycle is addressed to the church to tell us how to live in the face of persecution in a world that is against us. And if we don't understand that and we read the book in a way it's not intended to be read, then we are not going to be able to live the lives it's instructing us to live. And not only that, we won't understand the Bible as a whole because this is not a concept that's new to the book of Revelation. This is the whole trajectory of the entire Bible. As an example, just think about Christ's upper room discourse in it before he died. All right, from the Gospel of John. He focuses on a few things. He repeatedly tells his disciples that he's leaving. He said, I'm going back to the Father, talking about his ascension. Second, he tells them a lot about the Holy Spirit. He tells them over and over again, if I go away, I'll send you the Holy Spirit. He says, I'll be present with you through the Holy Spirit. He says, it's better for you when I'm physically gone and with you spiritually. Third, after he tells them he's sending the Holy Spirit, he tells us, his church, he's sending us. In his prayer to the Father, he says this, he says, as you have sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world even after his resurrection. He says, to his disciples, "As the father has sent me, even though I am sending you. This was his message that night in the upper room. And finally, he tells the disciples over and over again, you're going to get the spirit, you're going to be sent as, as I was sent, but he says, you're going to be persecuted because of me. He says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you were not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. Now with all of us in mind, everything Jesus spoke to them about, let's go back to the very beginning of that upper room discourse. What's the first thing that Christ says to them? He says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so... Would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. So this is what Jesus says to start them off. He wants them to be able to hear the rest of what he has to say and be able to live it out. He starts by giving them this promise. Your end is sure. I'm coming back for you after I prepare a place for you. Have you ever considered what place Jesus is talking about here? Well, it can't be whatever place we go to when we die physically, right? Because for one thing, we won't be physical, so the idea of a physical place doesn't really apply to the intermediate state. And second, even if Jesus is using place to speak metaphorically of where our spirits will be, this can't be talking about where we go when we die. This isn't what we would call heaven when we speak of where Christians go when they die now. Why? Because Jesus says he is preparing a place where he is going to come from and take them to himself, take us to himself so we're going to be with them. He's speaking of the second coming when he comes physically and we're with him physically. Plus, John just said in Revelation 21.1 that the first heaven passes away. See, Christ is not preparing a place right now that he's just going to destroy when he comes to get us. So the place Christ is preparing for us is our final destination. Christ has to be talking about the new heaven and the new earth. But the important question is, how is he doing this? Is Christ up there somewhere we can't see making a physical place he's going to bring with him? And that may sound like a dumb question, but I'm serious. See, those who insist on a literalistic interpretation of the symbols in Revelation run into real problems here. Because if this is speaking physically in Revelation 21, the first problem we have is now a physical limit to how many people can be saved. You ever thought about this? I'm not joking when I tell you there have been attempts by some Christians to estimate how many people will ultimately be saved by figuring out how many people you can cram into the physical dimensions of the New Jerusalem. I have heard firsthand a conversation about whether or not we'll live in houses, condos, or apartments in the New Jerusalem, because that will, of course, affect the size of each dwelling place that Jesus promises to us. Second, if Christ is somewhere preparing a physical place for the elect, what place is he talking about? Well, many of those that have spoke about, they say he's talking about the New Jerusalem. But if that's a physical place, well, then what's with the rest of the new heaven and the New Earth? Who's outside the New Jerusalem? What else is going on in the new creation? What's in the new heaven? It would still have to be physically separate from a new earth, since Jerusalem, we are told, comes down from heaven to earth, after the old heaven and earth are no more. So then what's in heaven if God's in the new Jerusalem on earth? You see the problems there are. If we take any of this literally, if we take any of this physically, Christ is not talking about a physical place here or in John 14. What's the point? When you put together the things Jesus focuses on in the upper room that night, that he's present with us spiritually through the Holy Spirit, that he sends us as he was sent by the Father, that we'll have to endure persecutions if we obey him in our call, and if the place he's preparing for us is the new heaven and the new earth, and if that is the hope he holds out to us so we will persevere in our mission, then how he is preparing this, the answer has to be in all of those things he talks about. And what that means is that Christ is preparing a place through his church that he is building. Christ is doing the work. We love to say that as Christians, right? We ever say, that's all him. I don't want any credit, right? And we're right when we do that. Christ has not stopped working. He is building his church. He is preparing a place for the elect. We live our lives now, obedient to the calling on us as his church, and we grow the church, we reclaim in nations for God, and that is how Christ is preparing a place for us. So we've seen over and over again, once our mission is complete, the end will come. Matthew 24, Christ said, But the one who endures to the end will be saved, and his gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Or as the Apostle Peter wrote, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. Understand that you here that God is patient towards is in the plural, and it refers to just the elect. Christ is waiting to come until all the elect are saved, and Paul. Ties in this salvation with the Old Testament promises to Israel in Romans 11 when he says, Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles or the nations, the ethnos, the fullness of the nations has come in, and in this way all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion, he will banish ungodliness from Jacob, And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. This is what John is talking about in Revelation 21. This is the culmination of all of this. This is the culmination of our mission here on on earth. And the reference here to the sea has a few different ideas that go along with it. First, this is comparing the old creation with the new, okay? In Genesis 1-2, we read about the sea. We read, the earth was without form and void, and the darkness was over the face of the deep, and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, God created the earth and then had to form all the details of it out of this chaos that's represented by the waters. If they're at the Bible, the sea or flood waters or the deep or a bunch of different ways, it's used to represent chaos or destruction for the world. But God always saves his people through it. Like at the flood or at the Exodus. God's people are saved through water, but the world is judged by it. Christ came and showed his power over the sea by calming the storm on the sea, by walking on the sea. We saw the first beast that Satan uses to deceive the world comes from the sea. Even the association of Satan with the dragon or Leviathan throughout the Bible is telling because they were sea monsters. Chaos and destruction come from the sea. And here in our final state, there is symbolically no more sea because final judgment's already happened, final salvation has already happened, and Satan has been judged. I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. But second, this goes hand in hand with the first part. The sea was to believed was believed to be the gateway to the underworld. All right. Once we're done with this study, it'll take a few weeks to prepare, and we're going to start studying the Book of Genesis on Tuesday nights, and we're going to talk a lot about how the Hebrews imagined the world to be, and it'll bring. So many of the odd things the Bible says about the world into in the focus for us. But one of the beliefs of the ancient world, which the Bible comes from, is that the earth is flat and the sea is the gateway to the underworld. When the Bible speaks of things under the earth, the way to get under the earth was through the sea. And here there is symbolically no more sea because the underworld has been destroyed, as we saw in Revelation 20. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. So if the sea is no more means there is no death, no more Satan, no more chaos, no more deceit, no more judgment. And after John describes this to us, his focus changes. He now says he sees the new heaven and the new earth, and he parallels that with what he describes as the new Jerusalem. He says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And the wording here can allow for the New Jerusalem to be part of the new heaven and the new earth, or John could be identifying the New Jerusalem with the new heaven and the new earth. And here again, literalistic readings run us into trouble, because the New Jerusalem comes down out of heaven from God, and in the next few verses, it tells us that God is in the New Jerusalem. So this is all symbolic. And note the New Jerusalem is prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So clearly here, this is the bride of Christ being referred to. And the New Jerusalem is a symbol for the church. We also want to notice the word prepared. It is the same word used here. When Christ said, in my Father's house are many rooms, if it were not so, would I have told you I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. It's also the same word used to describe those who suffer for their faith in Hebrews 11, where we read, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, for people who speak thus make it clear they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, They would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. See, even Abraham understood the land promise referred to something more than Israel. And this is why we need to think of what's being described here, not in physical terms, but as a description of our eternal state in Christ's presence. The whole point is that we will be with Christ. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. So New Jerusalem here is the church. We are the bride of Christ adorned in gold for our husband. Here we are called the holy city. We saw in the vision of the two witnesses, God's people are the holy city. Revelation 11. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff. There we have that language again. And I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. Do not measure the court outside the temple, leave that out for it is given over to the nations and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. We are the holy city, but we are also the temple, the dwelling place of God. We are that spiritually now, But then, when Christ returns, the physical dwelling place of God will be with man, will be with his church. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And we see that. The final state is the fulfillment of the promise given throughout the Bible. God dwells in our midst, we will be His people, and He will be our God. And Christ is preparing all of this through us, through His church. This is what was predicted in the closing words of the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 66. For behold, the Lord will come in fire, and His chariots like the whirlwind, to render His anger and fury, and His rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire the Lord will enter into judgment, and by his sword with all flesh, and those slain by the Lord shall be many. This is the final judgment. I read about this in Revelation 19. Those who sanctify and purify themselves to go into the gardens, following one in the midst, eating pig's flesh, and the abomination and mice shall come to an end altogether, declares the Lord. This is the reprobate. For I know their works and their thoughts, and the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues and they shall come and see my glory. I will set a sign among them, which is Christ, and from them I, shall, I will send survivors to the nations, to Tarshish, Pol, and Lud, to draw the bow, to Tubal, and Javan, to the coastlands far away that have not heard my fame or seen my glory. This is talking about the church in the here and now. And they shall declare my glory among the nations. And they shall bring all your brothers from the nations as an offering to the Lord on horses and in chariots and in litters and on mules and on dromedaries to my holy mountain Jerusalem, which is the church, says the Lord. Just as the Israelites bring their grain offering and a clean vessel to the house of the Lord and some of them also I will take for priests and Levites, says the Lord. This is Christ preparing a place for us through the mission of a church. I'm behind, sorry. And what is that place? For as the new heavens of a new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain from new moon to new moon, from Sabbath to Sabbath. All flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. This is our eternity in contrast to, and they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me, for their worms shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and there shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. That's the eternity for the reprobate. But for us... I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And the verb here translated dwell is in he will dwell with them. It's a verb used only five times in the Bible, and only one time out of the book of Revelation. And there are a bunch of other words for dwell. This one has special meaning. It's the same word used in John 1.14. We read, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And as you've probably heard, the verb here doesn't mean dwelt, it means pitch a tent. There's an allusion to the tabernacle as the place of God's dwelling. This is Christ. The presence came in the flesh of Christ, the true tabernacle, the true temple. What we see here is when his work is complete and the consummation comes, behold, the dwelling place of God with, is with man. He will dwell with them, same word, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. Christ. In his humanity will be with us again, only this time forever. And the word here, dwelling place," is the noun form of the same word. It literally says, "Behold, the tent of God is with man." So this refers to Christ's physical presence with us. Then when we began this study, I discussed the four overarching themes of the book. They were suffering in this world as Christians. They were victory. Which is the conquering that we have through Christ's victory. They were the unseen spiritual reality behind all we see, and the unstoppable movement of history, movement of history towards a sure end. And throughout the study, we've seen that these are all inseparably tied together. And we need to be aware of all of these in order to live as we are called to live in this age, including by the book of Revelation. Well, here in Revelation 21, we see the sure end, we see the victory, we see the unseen spiritual reality become visible to us. of living as strangers in this world. We have to fight the spiritual war we are in, the book of Revelation teaches us. We must live the lives we are called to live through the power of the Spirit so Christ can continue preparing a place for his people to rest from their labors, for the the kingdom of God to continue to grow over the whole earth. We are to look at this promise, like Abraham did, and live lives of faith like Abraham. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive an inheritance. That's where we're going. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promises in a foreign land, living in tents, same word for dwelling place, with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand above a seashore, that is the church. These old died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles in the earth, just like we are. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. And we're also to look to the promise, like the apostles did, and live the lives of holiness that they and Jesus called us to. Again, Second Peter. He says, "Since All these things, the world around us, the old creation, are thus to be dissolved. What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of a day of God as we're preparing because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt away as they burn but according to his promise we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells therefore beloved since you are waiting for these be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace and count the patience of our Lord as salvation just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. These are some thing, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, To him be the glory now and to the day of eternity. Amen. And next week we're going to finish chapter 21. And then I think, hold me to nothing. I think we're going to do all of chapter 22 the following week. So we have two more weeks to go.